God wants me to be happy. That's why I'm getting a divorce. That one sentence is what made me put down my fork and quickly finish chewing the pancake that was in my mouth. It was almost 10 years ago, I was sitting across the table from a man who was a member of the same church that I was a member of. The breakfast started out pretty cordial, quite pleasant, fairly smooth. That is, until I brought up his marriage. You see, about a month prior to this breakfast, I had gotten word from another member that this gentleman said he was going to leave his wife. But his abandonment of his marriage vows that he made before God years ago and his desertion to the marriage covenant he made with his wife was not based off of any biblical grounds for divorce. Like so many men and women in our culture today, his desire for self-fulfillment, the pursuit of a happy life, was being pursued at the expense of tearing apart what God had intimately joined together. So, in my effort to learn more about this man's heart and marriage, and for the foolish reasons that I began to listen to of why he was leaving, I I began to do what any goodwill Christian would do. I began to ask some further questions. Has your wife been unfaithful to you? He answered, no, she hasn't. Have you guys had a really rough marriage where fighting and distrust have pretty much remained constant from day one? He responded, well, at times we haven't gotten along, but nothing too different than most marriages, I would suppose. Then I asked him, well, then, Help me out here. Why are you leaving your wife? He then answered in a calm, collected, but a very eerie way. Eh, I know what the Bible says about divorce. But I've prayed about it. And God wants me to be happy. And that's why I'm getting a divorce. I've got a peace about it. Well, it's safe to say the breakfast did it in the same way it began. I began to challenge him in his illogical and deceived reasoning. I proceeded to open my Bible because you best believe I brought it with me to IHOP that morning. And I opened to Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus teaches very clearly on God's views on marriage from Genesis 1 and 2. In that passage, Jesus rightly upholds God's view of marriage and what God says about letting no man or no woman separate what God has joined together. And then I turn to Galatians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul teaches on the fruits of the Spirit with love and faithfulness being two of the fruits I kind of honed in on. Because love and faithfulness were obviously lacking in this man's life. I then began to warn and rebuke him. 
with what appeared to me to be an obvious and serious error in this man's thinking. At one point, I even told him that, sir, you may have a peace about your decision, but it's not a peace that came from God. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14 that there is a peace that the world can offer you. And it appeared that's exactly where this man got his peace from, from the world and not from the Lord. Well, as you'd expect, he didn't like what I had to say. He put his ticket down, proceeded to pay for it, and left. The conversation soon after ended, and the story only got worse. He began to oppose and even slander me around town, and anyone who tried to stop him and offer biblical counsel got the same heat in return. In a matter of a month or so, he eventually left his wife and his kids, and I don't know if he's ever returned back to the Lord since. This sad and tragic story is unfortunately not uncommon among many marriages we know about, even in our own lives today. I mean, how is it that a man or woman that once exchanged their marriage vows on their wedding day with, I do, all of a sudden can say with unflinching confidence, I'm done? What do you think has to enter into the mind or the heart of a man or woman that causes them to go from being committed till death do us part, for better and for worse, to quitting on that commitment. Friends, is every peace we experience in our life or every peace we think we experience in the church always a peace from the Lord? You see, in both the Old and New Testaments, the Bible speaks about the dangers of having a false peace. Even the dangers of possessing a hardened heart. For example, Jeremiah 6, verse 14, God gives this indictment on the leaders of Israel for the type of empty promises he gave his wayward people. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Like the Israelites in Jeremiah's days, we can live our lives year in and year out if we're not careful with a false sense of peace. We may even think that we are a-okay with God when in actuality, we might not. Friends, a false peace can lead even to a hardened heart. A prideful heart that is stubborn and obstinate and can no longer hear God's voice. You see, if we're not hearing from God's Holy Spirit, through God's Holy Word, then it's inevitable that we will become godless and unholy ourselves. Instead of hearing the words of life from the spirit of the living God, we will in fact be hearing from the spirit of this present evil age. 
the world, the flesh, dead religion, and the devil himself. John Owen once said, sin's advance blinds the soul from seeing its drift from God. The soul becomes indifferent to sin as it continues to grow. The growth of sin has no boundaries but the utter denial of God and opposition to him. Consider then the correlation here between a false peace and a proud heart that ultimately becomes a hardened heart. Recall back to the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. For hundreds of years, the Hebrews had received harsh treatment from the superpower Egyptians. And under the persecution that would occur under harsh slavery, we learn in the scriptures, really from Exodus 7 to Exodus 14, that all of that persecution, all of those hardships under the tyranny of Pharaoh came in part because of Pharaoh's hardened Then ironically, God delivers the Israelites from Pharaoh's hardened heart, takes them into the wilderness, and within three days in the wilderness, guess whose hearts are becoming hard? Eureka, the Israelites. We're told that their hardened hearts had, had been really the cause of their unbelief and wanting to go back to Egypt. Remember Psalm 95? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your hearts put, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, for those of us who are not really big on history and big, huge parts of the Old Testament, we just like things straightforward, put it on a magnet, put it on the dashboard. I need something a little more condensed, Pastor Blake. That's why the Proverbs are there, my friend. Proverbs 28, 13, and 14. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And consider again what Brother Greg read earlier from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, that same image of the hardened heart that we hear from Pharaoh in the Exodus, the Israelites in the wilderness, the proverb exhorting us is the same type of hardened heart that Jesus says is the root cause of many, if not all, of divorces. 
when a spouse who once said, I do, intentionally violates the covenant they made before God. Friends, a hardened heart ultimately comes from ignoring God's warnings about sin. It's where you put in your hearing aids of stubbornness, your hearing aids of pride, your earmuffs that we know better than God. A hardened heart, friends, is what happens when we become real comfortable in our sin and we can no longer hear about the dangers of it. In a marriage, a hardened heart can simply begin by forgetting the vows you made on your wedding day. That's why in premarital counseling, I already bring them to the vows in session one. Here's what you're going to make. Think about this very carefully. And friends, the same can even be true of our individual lives. A hot, white passion for King Jesus can slowly grow cold into seasons of apathy. Friends, that's, that's exactly why passages like this morning are so relevant. The image of a marriage between a bride and a groom is, is, is really what the Scriptures teach about our relationship with King Jesus. He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And friends, that's why local churches, a whole gathering of Christians, can fall into the same temptation that failing marriages can too. On the outside, everything might even look good. The budget looks good. The buildings look good. The church might even appear respectable in the eyes of other churches in the area. But after taking an honest evaluation a closer look into the life of a church, asking the right questions, revisiting the plain teaching of Scripture, churches too have to face the music on whether or not they have drifted in their love for Jesus, on whether or not churches have abandoned or appeared to have abandoned the love they had for Christ at first. Well, this morning we're going to look at an example of one church many years ago that faced this very dilemma. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. This morning we'll be looking specifically at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 595. My hope, as you're turning there, is that after we hear God's word this morning from this passage of Scripture, that we would remember how good Jesus has been to us and then therefore remove anything that could be threatening our love for Jesus. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, 
and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have three very basic points. Number one, Jesus commends his church. Jesus commends his church. That's verses one to three and verse six. Number two, Jesus corrects his church. Jesus corrects his church, verses four and five. And number three, Jesus calls and comforts his church. Jesus calls and comforts his church. That's verse seven. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, look back quickly to chapter one. Revelation chapter one. This this book opens up in chapter one, verses one to three, with a prologue, somewhat like John's gospel does. It's an introduction that gives you a little context on the genre of literature that we find ourselves in, both the author and the audience as well, that it was written to. Look with me in Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. You'll see here this book opens up with a description, he says, as the revelation or revealing, that's what the word means, of Jesus Christ. We find out here that this is an apocalyptic book and a prophetic in nature. Uh, The Greek word for revelation there is apocalypsis, there in verse 1. It just simply means a revealing, like the revealing or the unveiling of a curtain. God is revealing something that was once hidden about things to take place in the near future and things to take place in the years and possibly unknown amount of time ahead. This is a revealing about Jesus and what he desires to communicate to his beloved people. You read the book of Revelation, it speaks a lot about Jesus himself, about the spiritual realm of of good and evil, angels and demons, the church and the world, and the future events that will take place, such as the great white throne judgment of the wicked and salvation 
of the redeemed. That's why this book is also called a prophecy, which it's communicating both present and also future realities. Things that God has promised a long time ago that are being fulfilled and will be fulfilled at his timing. Uh, The human author here that God commissioned through Christ and mediated through angels to write down these visions, prophecies, symbols, and exhortations was the apostle John. Look at Revelation 1 verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. This is John, one of the original 12 apostles. Look again in verse 9. You see it again. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You'll notice there in verse 9 that John was on the exiled island, this prison colony of Patmos, which was located about 40 miles southeast off the coast of Asia Minor, which would have been around modern-day Turkey there. Uh, He was exiled. He was persecuted. He was ostracized. He was run out of town, if you will, literally to be isolated all by himself. Uh, Sometime written towards the end of the first century. And here John says his exile was not because, well, he said bad jokes or he didn't keep up with the latest trends. No, it says that he was isolated and persecuted because of his witness for Jesus. And friends, he wasn't like a Christian who went rogue and just kind of got weird all of a sudden. He's encouraging other Christians that would have received this letter, this prophecy, who were also undergoing persecution. Friends, if you know of anyone who's undergoing fierce opposition because of their love for Jesus, the book of Revelation is a tremendous amount of comfort for our brothers and sisters, maybe even you today. Read through it. Don't be intimidated by it. Read through it. It's a comfort for us to endure to the end for King Jesus. Now, John wrote down what he heard and saw from Christ, and he delivered this letter to seven particular congregations right there in Asia Minor. Look in verse 11. Uh, You'll notice the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, These churches were about 30 to 45 miles from each other, so not too far from each other. Think maybe even within an hour car drive from here to Fayetteville and all around. Uh, After this glorious vision at the end of chapter 1 of our resurrected Savior, sovereign king and great high priest Jesus Christ, he then forms this letter. He turns to the form that this letter would take. And this letter here in chapters 2 and 3, written to these congregations, would be mixed. They would be mixed in with encouragement and commendation. So kind of thumbs up for Jesus. And he also mixed with correction, rebuke, and warning from Jesus. And all of them are given a promise if they obey, if they heed, if they endure, but a warning if they turn a deaf ear to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Each church had its own unique challenges, false teaching, poverty, persecution, idolatry, and even spiritual apathy. All seven of these churches face 
challenges that every church throughout church history have faced, are facing, and will face until Jesus comes back. Friends, that's why a church like ourselves, a gospel preaching church located right here in Barling, Arkansas, can hear these letter, this letter this morning afresh, knowing that Jesus speaks in particular ways to every church he has worshipped. So Jesus does this in a very simple outline. Thank you, King Jesus. <laughs> he commends, he corrects, and he comforts his churches. He commends, he corrects, and he comforts his churches. Look right there in verse 1 again. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here, verse 1, Jesus does what he sets out to do in all true churches. He sets the table. He sets the tone and how he relates to his churches. And he begins right there describing himself to the Ephesian church as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, if you read the book of Revelation, there's, there's quite a few things that I don't fully grasp myself. So you're at home if you're wondering, ooh, not sure what to do with chapters like 4 to 18. Anyway, that's a sermon for another time. There are lots of symbols that God uses to communicate to his audience, but evidently the symbols would have been clearly understood by the first century hearers. One of those symbols are the symbols of a golden lampstand, spoken of in the Old Testament, but described here that Jesus is walking among these golden lampstands. Seems like he's kind of near to them, kind of knows them. What are the seven stars? What are these seven golden lampstands that chapter 1 verse 20 speaks about? Well, look at chapter 1 verse 20. I love it when God's word tells you what the symbols mean without getting kind of weird on you. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Some commentators divide over whether or not uh, the angels here that are mentioned are actually pastors or they are actual angelic creatures. Uh, the word angel here, angelos, it can mean messenger. That's why the division is there. My personal take on it is I do think they probably are angelic creatures. The book of Hebrews says angels are sent out to minister to those who are to inherit salvation 1 Corinthians 11.10 speaks about angels, I believe, uh, being very present and aware of what's going on in Christ's churches. Nonetheless, we're told that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus walks among his churches. And friends, the lampstands, they represent the light and the favor of God's presence among his people. So if you look down at Revelation 2, verse 7, the end of our passage, kind of bookending it here for you, we're told about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
God Almighty, the Son of the living God, now the Spirit, in verse 7, is speaking to the churches. Friends, this indicates that the lampstands can only continue to shine brightly where the Spirit of the living God is welcomed and powerfully working in the churches. Kids can sometimes be scared of the dark. I was one of those kids, probably for longer than I should. Praise be to God for nightlights, amen? All right. If you're still rocking those out, adults, it'll be our secret. Nightlights, very small, very inexpensive. Put it on the wall, put it in the bathroom. This little fixture can provide a sense of comfort to your children, a sense of guidance of where they're going if they need to get out of bed and kind of run to mom and dad's room. But it doesn't take very much to make those nightlights ineffective. Put a blanket over it, put a shirt over it, or unplug it from the wall, in the hallway, in the bathroom, in the house, goes dark. Friends, in the same way, if the Holy Spirit of the living God is no longer welcomed, is no longer called upon to work in the hearts of a church, there will come an hour where the lights will be turned off. If the spirit of the triune God is grieved, quenched, resisted, suppressed long enough, King Jesus says this church's ministry is over. Friends, that's why it is so important to be reminded afresh. A church is only relevant A church is only making a difference in the world with eternal impact when its lampstand is brightly shining for all to see. CCBC, that means that a church like ours is only brightly shining when the biblical gospel of our Lord is faithfully and boldly proclaimed week in and week out where the biblical Jesus is glorified in our singing and in our prayers, where the biblical ordinances Jesus gave of baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly and carefully administered to the proper recipients, where leaders see themselves fundamentally as servants and stewards of Christ and not celebrities to be marveled at where the members of the church genuinely love one another with the love of Christ in their hearts, when service in the church is a joy and a privilege, not something they feel entitled to or deserve. It's a church where the lordship of Jesus Christ really is the most important thing about it. Friends, this is a church whose lampstand will be shining brightly when every tradition, every preference, and every aspect of its ministry is humbly submitted to the Word of God. 
when the Spirit of God is applying the Word of God to the hearts of His people. Friends, the church will be a beacon of light. It will be a pillar and buttress of the truth where Jesus is not simply talked about, but where Jesus is actually worshipped. Friends, when the Spirit of the living God, though, is not working in a church, when he is grieved, when he is outraged, when he is quenched, when he is stubbornly resisted, the church will become a joke to the world. The church will be a counterfeit of true Christianity. It'll confuse people in their minds about what Jesus is really like. You see, Jesus here in verse 1 is conveying to the church in Ephesus just as he is conveying to us today. Jesus must have the highest devotion and the highest allegiance in our lives. You see, these stars or angels which are in his right hand, it indicates that Jesus Christ has authority. He has authority over the nations. He has authority over churches. He has authority over your life and my life. Friends, Jesus does not work for any human being. He does not depend upon us for anything to fulfill him. Jesus is the boss. Jesus is the superintendent. Jesus is the CEO. Jesus is the senior pastor. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is the head of his church. Friends, any church that forgets that, theologically or in practice, is committing idolatry. Jesus is Lord of his church, or he's not in it at all. Oh, friends, some of us have heard statements like that for the last 20 years of our upbringing. But some of us need to be reminded again, Jesus owns our life. Jesus owns this church. He's in charge. He can tell his church to do whatever he wants. He can bring into the life of his church whatever he wants. And he gives his church instructions how his church should be cared for and led. Friends, that's why these seven golden lampstands, they're symbolic of the churches. Who walked with God before sin existed? Remember Adam and Eve? The cool of the day. There was a time where man communed with his God. But when man sinned against God, he began to hide from him. Friends, we can try to hide from the Lord. Churches can kind of try to hide all their blind spots and blemishes and sweep them under the rug. But Jesus walks amongst his churches. He loves his church. He cares about his church. Friends, Jesus knows his churches. So, When Jesus began to give, like a doctor, a diagnosis of how the Ephesian church was doing, what does Jesus first commend them for? Look at verses 2 and 3. 
Jesus says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. I just want to notice a few traits. Jesus, who's the best encourager, right? If we want to learn how to encourage each other, just look to Jesus. He gets it right every time. I want you to notice three things that Jesus says about the Ephesian church that they did well. Number one, they were a hardworking church. They were a hardworking church. Look at verse two. Jesus mentions their toil. Uh, This word denotes the idea of intense labor, working to the point of exhaustion. They were disciplined. They were determined. In other words, this was not an idle church, a lazy church. This was not lazy boy Baptist church. That was not what Jesus said about them. No, they were the kind of church that the church calendar was full. If you looked on their church app, they had a lot going on. Look at their Facebook page and their website. It just seems like they always got something going on in the ministry. They were active. They were zealous to some degree there. They were doing labor-intensive ministry. Jesus commends them. You're a hardworking church. You're realizing that life is short, and you've, you've been enduring. You've been working hard. Secondly, he says they're a persevering church. Their hard work was not short-lived, but it was a persevering church. Look there in verse 2. He says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance. Then again in verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Uh, This really kind of lines up with the rest of this book. This book is written to encouraging Christians not to give up but to finish the race. It's it's kind of an intensified version of the book of Hebrews. If you read the end of Revelation, the consolation for the Christian is that Jesus wins and everyone who belongs to him ultimately wins as victors as well. You'll see right there in chapter one, remember, the apostle John talked about how he was patiently enduring tribulation as well. Uh, This was truly a cross-carrying church. They were serious about their call to love Jesus. And they were helping each other. They had not grown weary in that commitment that they made to the Lord, at least outwardly, didn't appear to be. They were a persevering church. And thirdly, I think some of you might like this one, they were a doctrinally discerning church. They were a doctrinally discerning church. In other words, they care about what was taught. They really got excited about statement of faiths and cross-references and Hebrew and Greek, and podcasts, and talking about what books they write. They were all about doctrine. Look again in verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Friends, this was the church that all the sharp seminary students would want to go to. This was where the solid women's Bible studies were held. This was where the children's ministry program was off the chain in the right kind of way. They were teaching the kids catechisms, memorizing verses, understanding the gospel as early as a child. 
I mean, this church was full of kids, students, adults, older saints who could sniff out false teaching like a German shepherd. They were theological watchdogs. They didn't just let anybody into their pulpit. They had a pretty high bar for who could preach to them God's words. In fact, in verse 6, Jesus even commends them for hating and detesting and having nothing to do with the works of the Nicolaitans. Uh, Apparently, this was a form of Christianity, some kind of sect that was being propagated of licentious living, kind of get Jesus and have your love for the world too. You can read more about the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2, 14 and 15. Listen, this church not only was a theological watchdog church, but they had a deep bench. If their senior pastor was sick, (laughs) backup was amazing. If he got sick, backup was amazing. And if he got sick, well, they could just call in all the former ministers who used to preach there. You remember the apostle Paul? He planted the church. I mean, who wouldn't want Paul in the church minutes? The apostle Paul planted our church. You know, wow. Remember back in Acts 19 and 20, this pagan idolatrous community of Ephesus? had the gospel penetrate in, and it says all the residents in Asia heard the word of the Lord. The church in Ephesus was formed under that ministry. But then there was Timothy who knocked on the door and brought God's word to God's people. There was Apollos. That dude could really keep your attention with his eloquence and his exposition. And then you had the apostle John. Friends, this this church had a deep bench. They had sermon podcasts that anyone would want to listen to. This is the kind of church that really most of us would want to join. This was a good church in many different ways. Hardworking, persevering, theologically discerning. I mean, it's got to be up there in your top five to want in a church. But friends, Jesus can see right through a website. He can see right through how many baptisms you had that year at the SBC. He can see right through a pep rally for Jesus. He can see right through what's going on in the hearts of his people. Because Jesus knows his churches. He knows the good about his churches. He knows the bad about his churches. He knows the ugly about his churches. You see, better than a church audit, better than a church consultant, better than a search committee could investigate how the church was doing. Jesus needs no survey from the members. Jesus needs no survey from the deacons. Jesus knows everything about his churches. Oh, friends, That should bring a deep comfort to those of us who care about Christ's church. Some of us can say, Pastor Blake, I think we got about seven needs in our church. And Jesus says, actually, I know all the needs of the church. Oh, Pastor Blake, I've got so many different goals I would want for the future of our church. Jesus has amazing plans for his church. But Friends, Jesus knows the needs and spiritual health of every church better than any pastor, better than any deacon, better than any consulting firm that Lifeway can provide you. 
And friends, Jesus knows everything about the life of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. Did you know that? He knows how this church is really doing better than I can tell you. So brothers and sisters, have a little sanctified imagination with me today. What do you think Jesus is saying about Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church? If we were to get a letter in the mail, Brad told me it came in, or we got a Facebook message, or Jansen said there was a a letter taped on the glass door of our building. Makes me nervous if that happens, but anyway. But it came from Jesus, from our Lord, and he wrote out what he commended. And he also wrote out what he was concerned about. What do you think Jesus would say? What do you think the angels who are assigned to our church would say about what they hear when we sing, what they hear when we pray, how we relate to one another? What do you think Jesus would say about our personal relationships throughout the week? What do you think he would say about our service teams, our worship gatherings, our elders' meetings, our members' meetings? What do you think Jesus would commend? And what do you think Jesus would correct? Well, friends, I would, I would take time to tell you that I see many of these wonderful things in the Ephesian church, in our church. It is super encouraging for me. This room is three-quarters filled. You guys are here to hear the word of God. You're here to sing God's praises. You're here to pray with the saints. You're here to serve the needs of the saints. You're here to fulfill the Great Commission. Friends, we've been through a lot in the last two years. We are a persevering church. This is a hardworking church. I want to encourage you that I see these fruits as well. Be encouraged. The Lord may bring to all our minds ways that he's encouraged by our church. But friends, Jesus also turns the table because he loves his church. He corrects and warns them, which leads to point number two, Jesus corrects his church. Look at verses four and five. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, some of you, if you read a passage like this, at least I would say maybe a portion of you probably would, just if you study long enough and flip the question over and over, you might be thinking, you know, Blake, does does Jesus ever have something against Another Christian? He says, I have this against you. It's pretty intense, right? Or you might hear this language about a lampstand being removed and think, I mean, can a Christian lose their salvation? Let me help you lay down some important foundational theological blocks. Susan, this is sound doctrine. Remember that? That's our little thing, by the way, anyway. Let me start off with a question. Can Christians grieve the heart of God when we sin? Do you like this? Yeah, we can. You can grieve 
the Holy Spirit of God who's been sealed on your soul for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Friends, sometimes depression can be the result of physiological suffering and some mishaps and misfires and some some difficulties in the brain chemistry of a person. That can be physiological and physical in nature. But sometimes depression is the result of living in unrepentant sin. Did you hear my qualification on those two? I use sometimes for both. I just want to make the obvious point here. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you try to hide in sin, suppress your sin, lie about your sin, live a double life, I promise you, you're going to be miserable. And that's God's warning sign to us. Do not grieve the Spirit of God. Right now, some of you might be having certain things God just keeps bringing back up to your mind. And you know it's the same thing that he's been bringing to your mind over the last six weeks. But you keep going, no, no, that's just not me. Then another sister brings it up, it's back again. No, no. Oh, the sermon was on this. Friends, stop ignoring what God's bringing to your mind. Maybe some of the sadness and discouragement and depression you're feeling, some of it might be because you're grieving the Spirit of God. See, friends, Jesus is never glorified, nor does he take pleasure when we live in sin. You see, that's why we have a good Heavenly Father. He convicts us. He reproves us. He disciplines us to show us We belong to him. You know, the late R.C. Sproul once said it well, the spirit always communicates that he's for you when he convicts you of your sin. You know, so as a Christian, Christ will never ultimately be against you. You know that, right? Conviction does not mean condemnation. Convictions to persuade you, to convince you, to lead you to repentance. Condemnation means you're judged without hope. Friends, Romans 8.1, if you struggle with discouragement in the Christian life, keep Romans 8.1 very close to your side. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or consider Romans 8, 28 to 34. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? Listen to 8. Uh, Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, 
who indeed is interceding for us. So no, dear Christian, Christ will never ultimately be against you if you belong to Christ. Any kind of feelings of condemnation, partially because maybe you're not remembering the grace of God in Christ for you. If you were raised in a legalistic upbringing, in a legalistic home, it might be hard for you to understand that God loves you as much as he says he does. I just want to encourage you to memorize all the verses that talk about in Christ. In Christ, you belong to him. Friends, praise be to God. If salvation was up to us, we would all be lost. You know that, right? If salvation depended on me, I would not be in this pulpit. I would be drinking up the pleasures of the world and go right to hell. But praise be to God. It is God who is doing the saving. Prone to wander. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take it and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You see, Revelation 2, let me lay down one more brick before we get back into the text. It's not written to one Christian. So Jacob should not read Revelation 2 today, sitting here like this is the letter from Jesus to the church of Jacob. You know, it's as much as Jacob might want to be a one-person member of church at times, or, or Greg or Scott or whoever, he's not writing to one individual. He's writing to a corporate body, a congregation, a local church. And this church is just like every other church in the world. They're filled with true Christians and false converts. True Christians and false. It means there's a mixed bag of people in this body. So when Jesus ushers this warning, Jesus knows who the sheep are who will hear and who the false converts who won't. What did Jesus have against this church? He says, I have this against you. Friends, you don't want that in your inbox tomorrow. We don't want that, a letter from Jesus about CC. We don't want, I have something against you. What did Jesus know? about this church that went beneath the surface and got down into the heart. Look at verse 4. He says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This word abandon, it's a pretty intense word. In 1 Corinthians 7, 13, it's used to speak of a man divorcing his wife or a wife divorcing his husband. Jesus is saying, I didn't go anywhere. The faithful bridegroom has kept his end of the covenant. He's looking to this church and saying, you are separating from me. You are pursuing divorce papers from me. You have abandoned the love you said you had at first. But even though Jesus says a hard word here, Jesus looks at this church and speaks in the way a true lover does. A gentle, gracious courageous husband who is jealous for his bride's heart. He doesn't treat this church like another worldwide, you know, check off the box list. Jesus isn't going, I've got a lot to do. Leave me alone, church. No, he, he looks at this church on the outside as a bride who was doing a lot of things well. The house was kept, the bills were paid, but Jesus says your heart has grown very cold to me. Members of CCBC, 
Have you been there? Has your heart grown cold to Jesus? Have you found yourself spinning your wheels in your life? Working like a madman, working like a mad woman? I don't know how that works. A busy person? You're doing a lot. You might even be at church every Sunday. You're somewhat keeping up with your Bible reading. You've got all these things going on in your life. And on the outside, the calendar looks like you are faithful, you are active, you are persevering. But on the inside, you're dying. If someone were to ask you the question behind the question, you might melt in your chair. If you were to look at your walk with our Lord just over the last six months, Has the flame grown dim? Maybe the last several years, your heart's grown rather cold spiritually. You know, if it has, the Lord already knows. He already knows. And guess what? He cares. He cares. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Friends, that's what Jesus says to the burdened heart, to the callous heart, to the cold heart. Come, let me provide rest for your souls. Listen, if you're not a Christian here today, I wonder how you view Jesus' direct but loving concern for his churches. I mean, do you have anyone in your life that pursues you with that type of care and courage? Do you have anyone in your life that's actually not afraid to tell you what you need to hear? Actually cares about your soul, which is far more important than if you're going to get the job or not? Friends, that's the, that's the Savior we worship today. This is the God we talk about. He's a personal God. He's an all-knowing God. He knows everything about us. He knows our fears, our anxieties, our sins, and our joys. And he cares for us. Friends, God is the perfect open-heart surgeon. He takes out our heart of stone, Ezekiel 36 says, and gives us a heart of flesh that delights in him. He knows when our hearts are growing cold and hard. Tell him, tell him it's getting icy inside. Tell him winter's been going on in here, even though it's felt like summer out there. Tell him he can ignite those flames once again. Friends, Jesus stepped down into this cold dark world. He walked in the wilderness, took on Satan himself, resisted every temptation he could offer, and he fulfilled God's will from the first breath to the last. Friends, he bore our sin on that tree, bearing the wrath of God for God's enemies, i.e. us, He drank down that cup so that in him we might have our thirst quenched by him. 
He died on the cross, and three days later, God raised him from the dead, demonstrating he really is the fountain of living waters. He really is the lover of our souls. He really is a Savior who is mighty to save. Come to this fountain. Come to Jesus, and you will find rest for your souls. Friends, that's the good news. You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to go do some legalistic like three years of boot camp for Jesus and then get right with God. No, come to him right now with the burdens on your back, with the coldness in your heart and saying, save me and change me for you. All by his grace. Brothers and sisters, what do you do when your love for Jesus begins to wane? Maybe you believe that good news today, but your heart has still grown cold. What do you do when walking away from Jesus seems a lot easier than staying committed to him? Well, friends, I don't have an Excel spreadsheet with a lot of 25 things to tell you. I just simply want to tell you what Jesus says. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. He just gives two commandments. What does he say? Remember and repent. Remember is just the the constant refrain in the scriptures. Don't forget who God is. Don't forget how good he is. Don't forget how loving he is. Don't forget how faithful he is. Don't forget he's never changed. The day you felt his love in such a supernatural way has not changed. He has never left you. He will never forsake you. Remember. Friends, that's exactly what we do when we take the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Next Sunday night, Lord willing, we will gather together and take the Lord's Supper. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul taught the church at Corinth? And we recite it every time we take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. this is my body, which is for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why it's so important not to miss church if you can be here. It's so important to come back in the evening if you're able to so that your heart can remember God's kindness to you and to me through Jesus Christ. But here in Revelation 2, he doesn't just say remember generally, remember broadly. Jesus says remember specifically from where you have fallen. I mean, it's kind of kind of walk back on your steps a little bit. Look at your calendar. If you're a calendar kind of person, it's really telling. What have you been doing the last six months? Tell me about what's been filling your hours. Tell me about the people you hang out with the most. Tell me how often you've been in fellowship. Sometimes we just need to kind of backtrack. And God may use brothers and sisters to kind of help us to see where that may have fallen. Friends, you and I can never be neutral with Jesus. We're either growing in our love or we're drifting from him. That's why it's so crucial 
that you join a church that cares about your sin. Join a church that cares about your sin. Here's what I mean by that. If drifting from Jesus is our natural default, like if it's all up to us, we're not going towards Jesus, we're going away, right? If that's our natural default by ourselves, how important should it be that we're a member of a church that cares when we're drifting? Friends, if you're visiting here today and you're still wondering, hey, is CCBC the church for me? Here, go home. Get on a piece of paper, whiteboard, whatever your way of organizing things are. Write out the top five things you're looking for in a church. And then ask yourself the question when you're done, is caring about your repentance of sin and your devotion to Jesus in the top five? Friends, we want to be a church. We want to pray to be a church where it's not easy to hide. That doesn't mean we're bullies. That doesn't mean we're legalistic because we want to help each other stay close to the fire. Friends, pray that CCBC would never become a church where it's easy to hide. That we would never become a church where it's easy to drift and nobody even cares. Pray that we would not lose sight of our responsibility for one another because we are all prone to drift. Friends, as uncomfortable as it may feel at times, this is exactly what God intends. If we're going to stay close to the gospel fires, we need each other to continue doing that. And every time we recite the church covenant, we are reminded we are like spiritual Velcro for each other. Every time we hear those things that are ah, lacking in my life, ooh, I need each other. We come back together again. We need to continue walking with Jesus together. Friends, Stephen Wellam has a good word. You can be a theologically discerning church, You can be a doctrinally loving, Bible-hugging church and yet not be transformed by the Bible you say you love. And friends, it can happen to a pastor. Pray for me and the elders. As much as we give ourselves to teaching and shepherding, pray that our hearts would not grow cold, but we would be transformed by what we teach you. Stephen Wellam says, Doctrinal truth must affect the entirety of who we are. There are many good things in life which legitimately demand our attention, yet it is far too easy to forget who is central in everything, namely our Lord Jesus. Given who our Lord is as the God, the Son incarnate, given what he has done for us as our new covenant head and incomparable redeemer, given the absolute necessity of his work, given that he has represented us in obedient life and stood in our place in substitutionary death to pay for our sin and accomplish our eternal salvation, given that he is the all-sufficient Savior who meets all our needs as our great prophet, priest, and king, given all of this, our only reasonable response is to submit ourselves to him in complete trust, confidence, love, joy, worship, and obedience. He demands and deserves nothing less. So friends, is there anything in your life that you have let quench your love for Jesus? Maybe it's too much time spent on social media. TikTok and Instagram seem to fill your thoughts more than the words of life. Maybe it's hobbies, hobbies that are neutral really morally. 
Maybe they filled your schedule so much that they've clouded out any kind of personal devotion time. Maybe it's a busy work schedule or travel schedule for that matter. Netflix, all the way to worrying over things that you cannot control. All of these things can sap our love for the Lord. Is there any relationship you've let enter into your life that's influencing you towards spiritual apathy and coldness? Friends, do you find yourself being cold and critical of others instead of encouraging and thankful? Oh, friends, love for God will always result in love for one another. John doesn't tell us here, or Jesus rather, technically, what was the love they abandoned at first? Was it love for God? Was it love for the members of the church? I think the answer is yes. It's kind of both. You can't really say you love God if you don't love others. And you can't really love others in the way God intends if you're not loving God. It's really kind of a package deal. Well, point three, Jesus kind of lands the plane here. And as we conclude, look at verse seven, as he calls and comforts his church. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You see, the Ephesian church, with all the good things from the outside that were going on in the ministry, they were actually in danger. They didn't have maybe the more egregious and obvious sins in the public eye. But the eyes of Jesus saw what was really there. Jesus warned them. He says if they did not remember, repent, and return, friends, he says he'll remove the lampstand from among them. He'll remove the power source from among them. The lights of God's favor, the light of God's presence, the one thing that makes the church relevant and distinct would be removed. Friends, I don't know if you ever know this, but you have to have a category of a dead church. It doesn't matter how many people attend the church. If Christ has removed the lampstand or is about to, judgment has fallen. Oh, friends, pray. Pray for God's favor on other churches. Pray for the blessing and the preaching of other churches beyond our own. Pray for other pastors in their ministries. We want to see God show mercy to these churches and the lampstand to bright, shine brightly. Not just our church, but other churches as well. Did you notice there? He says, let, let, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. What does it mean to conquer? Well, it just simply means to keep the faith. You keep your love. You stay a Christian <laughs> to the end. Uh, friends, again, if salvation was up to us, well, we wouldn't conquer anything. But Jesus has conquered on our behalf and has promised to bring his people home. That's why he calls the presence of God the paradise of God. Do you remember Genesis 3, the tree of life? What had happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They were banned from the tree of life, exiled from the tree of life, cut off 
from the tree of life. And friends, one day, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, would crush the head of the serpent. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who walks amongst the lampstands, hung on a tree on Calvary, bearing our sin debt so that we might have access again to the tree of life. Friends, Eden was lost by our first parents, but the second Adam, the true Israel, the obedient son, Jesus Christ, has given access to a new city, the new Jerusalem, where the tree of life is present again. Friends, that is extended to all of us who keep our eyes on him. Friends, how do we, how do we keep our hearts warm? How do we keep our focus on Christ? Well, look what he said in verse 7. This is the call. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, the lampstand will keep shining brightly when Jesus remains preeminent. And when God brings sin to our mind that we need to deal with, we need to remember, we need to repent, and we need to return. You know, repentance is not something radical Christians do. Repentance is something real Christians do. Let he who has ears to hear this morning hear what the Spirit is saying to Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you've sent your Son to walk amongst his churches, to encourage us, to commend us, to correct us, to challenge us, and to comfort us. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, make known to us the ways we are walking well as a church and ways we need to grow and ways we need to repent and ways we need to return. Lord, remind us again that you will bring us home and we will conquer as we stay focused on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.